0: to create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today welcome to the new books network
1: welcome to new books network i'm your host Schneer zalman newfield in hell hath no fury gender disability and the invention of Damned bodies in early christian literature Published by Yale University Press in 2021, Megan Henning illuminates how the bodies that populate hell in early Christian literature are punished after death in spaces that mirror real carceral spaces, effectually criminalizing those bodies on earth. Megan Henning is Associate Professor of Christian Origins at the University of Dayton. I'm so glad her book has brought her to our program. Welcome. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me and reading the book.
1: Oh yes, it was. Uh, I, I don't know if it's right to say it was a real pleasure to read a book about hell, but it was very, very uh, uh, interesting and illuminating. I'm
2: um, so glad I find myself in those gymnastics all the time. I can't. I have to be really careful about saying, you know, I found this really cool thing in my research. It's not cool at all. Um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> new discoveries have to be really carefully couched. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly, exactly. Um, uh, well, uh, to get started, could you please tell us about your background and what led you to write this work?
2: Sure. So um, this is my second book about hell, and um, it is part of a research trajectory for me. Um, as you already mentioned, this this book works at the intersection of um, early Christian history, but also gender and disability studies. And I got interested in Religious language around uh, disabled bodies and suffering bodies in um, early in my in my teen years. Actually, my family underwent a lot of trauma when I was in high school. Um, my grandfather was dying of cancer, and my grandmother was in a traumatic um, car accident that led to multiple um, injuries and multiple acquired disabilities. And um, then my father lost his job six months after that accident. So um, I was really attentive at that point in time to the ways in which our faith communities used biblical texts and sometimes the same texts um, in ways that were really helpful in a situation of um, suffering and acquired disability and ways that they they used even sometimes the exact same texts in ways that were hurtful. And so I began a journey of thinking about what are we doing in religious spaces when we're reading texts that talk about the experience of disability or human suffering? Um, and what is the impact on the people that are in those communities? and. That was the beginning of a longer journey, but when I discovered disability studies in graduate school and started to think about, um, about specifically about the New Testament and the history of early Christianity, I realized that the concept of hell, of conscious eternal torment, um, was part of this conversation, in a very big way and that a lot of the scholarship that had been done on it previously was very focused on questions of the origin of the idea of hell. Um, and part of that was seemingly in a way to um, separate the idea of hell from the tradition and to say, like, this isn't really part of the tradition. This is a um, something that comes from the broader culture. And um, that origin question is part of the puzzle. But I started asking questions about rhetoric in my first book, and then about um, the cultural images that are being borrowed in this book, because I don't think that we can um, absolve early Christians of the concept of hell by simply saying, it's not as simple as saying, where's the origin? And now all of the explanation for why humans do this is at that origin point, Um, because These concepts have been a part of and continue to be part of not just Christian ideas of the afterlife, but part of the popular imaginary. Um, Even people who in North America who do not believe in a place of eternal conscious torment after death. Are tuning into shows like The Good Place or American Horror Story. or maybe even have a notion of criminal justice in which the punishment fits the crime that they don't realize is quite directly tied to ideas about hell.
1: Right, and specifically including ideas about hell in the early Christian tradition.
2: Exactly, yeah, exactly. That, That very specific set of ideas has had a profound impact on, uh, on Western culture, specifically because of the influence of early Christianity. It's really through Dante um, that this becomes sort of the paradigmatic idea about the afterlife. But Dante is getting those ideas from one of the early Christian apocalyptic texts that I look at called The Apocalypse of Paul. He says at the beginning of his um, text, The Inferno, um, I, you know, I just read the vision of Paul. And he's talking about this um, this fourth century apocalyptic, or um, sorry, early fifth century apocalyptic text that is describing our uh, is describing these measure for measure punishments and these this geography of traveling to these spaces, and it's based on that vision that Dante imagines his own hell that then goes on to have a profound impact on um, not just Christianity um, in the West, but most of civilization thinks about um, Roman notions of torture and justice without realizing that they're doing so on a regular basis.
1: Right. right. And uh, I hope to get uh, maybe at the end of our conversation uh, uh, to talk a little bit about the more contemporary manifestations of these ideas but to go back a bit so you you explore uh, numerous ancient texts including uh the apocalypse of paul uh, apocalypse of peter the book of mary's repose the acts of thomas the six books of apocryphon and the apocalypse of uh, zephaniah um can you tell us a little bit about these texts
2: Yes. So I kind of I kind of walked us back there from the present to Dante back to the Apocalypse of Paul. The Apocalypse of Paul is one of the later ones. So the earliest one of these texts would be the Apocalypse of Peter. And that's a 2nd century text and it is um not included in the Bible. It's an early Christian text that is written in the 2nd century and it describes um it describes after a a afterlife space of punishment after um, after a period of eternal judgment mm-hmm. where people receive punishments that fit the sins that they committed on earth and specific sins are listed with specific punishments for those specific, specific sins and groups of people are being described as well as the punishments that they are receiving and the descriptions of those punishments um, frequently are tied to roman carceral techniques so um, the punishments that are described in the apocalypse of peter are not just dreamed up out of the author's imagination they are um punishments that are if we look at the uh, roman punitive system that are reserved specifically for lowest status members of society so the enslaved and non-elites um, Heads of household would not be susceptible to these punishments. And so, in this second century text, we have um, Roman criminal justice standards being given a divine stamp of approval, right? That God's justice system mirrors earthly justice systems. And then, other texts um, like the Apocalypse of Peter emerge. That So the other texts that you listed are are later texts that we think are either um, reading the Apocalypse of Peter or are developing independently from shared apocalyptic traditions, because there are um, Jewish apocalypses that exist before this that don't have the measure for measure punishments, but that have some of the other features of this literature, like the um, going on a tour and being led by a tour guide, for example. So, the saint in each of these texts is usually going on the tour and they ask, Who are these people? And then the angel or interpreter says um, that these people committed this sin and they're punished here in this way. And this is a really, if if you're reading these texts, it gets a little repetitive, right? Like it looks exactly like that in every single thing. But the Uh,
1: humdrum of hell
2: yes (laughs) so but the but the later apocalypses pretty much follow this and then they're adding what changes though um over time are the kinds of sins that are punished um and who is held accountable for them so even though we have um a predict a somewhat predictable pattern to these texts um what changes is who is touring hell. So sometimes it's a male saint like Peter or Paul, um, but in other texts and a number of them that you mentioned, um, it's Mary. And then the other thing that changes is the list of sins and the punishments that are given. Some of them are somewhat traditional and are repeated throughout all of the texts. And some of them change depending on which text we're looking at.
1: Right. And, um, Just to to kind of set things up here a bit, um, how do the richly detailed descriptions of hell in the early Christian literature relate to how hell is depicted in the Christian Bible itself?
2: Oh, thank you. Yes. I started in the second century and I should have started in the first. This is very helpful. Okay. So, (laughs) and my first book really covers this topic and I only touch on it a little bit. in this one, my first book is about the depictions of hell that we find in the Bible. And, um, and then the, the book that we're talking about today starts in the second century really and goes forward. So what you have in those first century depictions in what we what Christians call the New Testament texts um, are usually much shorter than what I'm talking about in these apocalyptic texts. So in some ways I frequently say that these texts kind of fill in the gaps in those, those earliest first century texts. The first century texts Um, will describe a place, the place where we see the most description would be in the book of Matthew, where he talks about places where there's outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then it's really second through um, sixth century Christians are kind of filling in that picture and saying like, okay, well, what is this place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? What's going on there? And then they come up with some pretty imaginative stuff. Um, that, and that's where we end up with these really detailed descriptions of torture that they're drawing from, um, Roman carceral techniques. So, um, and it's not coincidental. So I talk about this a little bit in Hell Hath No Fury that like, for example, um, you know, Matthew has the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then um, later depictions of hell describe hell like an underground mine. And um, torment in the mines is, um, is for early Christians modeled off of this Roman punishment, which was the worst punishment you could be assigned. It was incredibly grueling. And dangerous you were likely to be disabled or acquire diseases while you were committing or completing this sentence you didn't expect to be released and um, it was a place full of noxious gases to be completely graphic um, roman underground mine work prisons did not have bathrooms so like you were working in the midst of human excrement and it could be extremely cold or extremely hot, depending on where you are. So in those in those places, and so the Apocalypse of Paul, for example, the worst punishment is in the lowest part of hell, where it's extremely cold, and everybody's teeth are chattering, and that's like one of their punishments. Um, and I think this is directly mirrored off of um, an expansion of what we find in Matthew, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and in And in the Apocalypse of Paul, it's much more clearly tied to carceral tactics than mourning or other ways and reasons why you might gnash your teeth, because it's clearly tied to these um, underground spaces that were known to be cold, extremely cold and dangerous um, and and lead to torment and disease. Um, So and also the saying, you know, cold day in hell. Um, it turns out in the Apocalypse of Paul, like there actually is a cold space in hell, so that's maybe not as unique as people might want it to be. Right. <laughs> I, I,
1: I saw that. You, you people think of hell as very hot. Oh, this is it, this place is you know, hot as hell. You know, you think of hell as a very hot space, but then it turns out that there's also a cold version or aspect of hell.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, Old can be torturous, too. That uh, is... Uh, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So, speaking of all these tortures, do people have bodies in hell?
2: Yes, that's such an important question. Um, people absolutely have bodies, and they these punishments are embodied. In fact, um, one uh, 4th century church father, John Chrysostom, makes clear um, that he thinks that it's very important that people have bodies in hell because otherwise, um, how could they gnash their teeth? How could they weep? Right? Like, and he takes he takes this like to the extreme. He's like, well, like you know, obviously, um, outer darkness wouldn't be a punishment unless you had eyes. So, so he's um, he's describing this space as one that absolutely is about resurrected bodies being punished in fleshly ways.
1: Right, right. And your work highlights how gender and disabilities or non-normative bodies show up in the tours of Hell literature. Uh, how are uh, bodily differences and gender, uh, how does this relate to the discussion of uh, bodily differences and gender in ancient Greek thought?
2: So... As you know, I'm very glad that you asked that question. Um, this, is sort of, this is sort of the heart of the book, but it's also the kind of surprising aspect where people are like, okay, I get where she's going, maybe with the, you know, how hell worked and the carceral spaces or the prisons, but like what what on earth do gender and disability have to do with this? So um, in antiquity and in early Christianity, um, these ideas about hell are operating in a space where women's bodies are viewed as disabled bodies. And those bodies are frequently, but of course not always assigned pejorative value. So to be punished in hell is to become disabled and womanly. And this is something that is hard for us perhaps to imagine, but uh, really this is based upon the kind of conventional wisdom around gender and bodies that is also reflected in ancient medical literature, it's reflected in uh, philosophy, it's reflected in Christian theology. And so we know that these ideas about the body are not just something that ancient doctors would be familiar with, but that the broader culture understood to be a kind of fundamental truth. About how gender and bodies worked. In particular, women are in antiquity viewed as passive. They are they have weak, leaky, porous, smooth, and cold bodies, and men's bodies are thought to be the opposite in every way. So strong, hot, and uh, and impervious. And that also meant that if a person's body was presenting these characteristics that were associated with female bodies, they were seen themselves to be effeminate and sort of sliding into femininity. Um, But those same characteristics that are associated with women's bodies are also associated with sick and disabled bodies in antiquity. And so, What's really stunning that we might see as a bit counterintuitive is that um, disability in antiquity actually makes up a large portion of the population compared to what it makes up in ours, right? Because ancient medicine is not what modern medicine is. So things that impairments today that don't become disabling like um, vision, visual impairment, right? I'm wearing contacts right now. And I don't, that doesn't impact my life as a disability from a cultural model of disability studies where we think about both the biological and the cultural aspect of of a disability. Because I'm wearing my contacts, we don't think of me as someone who has a, a visual impairment because my visual impairment doesn't impact really the way that I do my life once I have assistive technology. But in antiquity, people could very well expect to go blind before they die. Other things that I mentioned in the book include, right, um, intestinal parasites that, because of sanitation technology, um, worms were a deadly threat to the human body that people knew about and were worried about. And they incidentally also associated them with women's bodies. Um, They thought that worms could be, only be produced in uterus, in in a uterus. And so women were not only, Susceptible to worms, they were the source of them. Um, But, sorry, I digress. (laughs) Into worms. Um, But the the idea that um, disability is pejorative, we might not expect from a society in which eighty percent of the population is disabled, right? we might say that that's something that only is something that give, is given a pejorative status when it's something that's seen as extraordinary or um, outside of what you would expect or non-normative. And in fact, disability studies had even prior to this work looked at the classical age as a time when people with disabilities were probably treated relatively better than they are today. And as I'm doing the work for this book, I, I have to say there's a couple of counter examples that we might want to look at in hell that would suggest that even in a society where the majority of the population is disabled, disability is still assigned a pejorative status. Um, And that seems counterintuitive to us, and we we would expect that maybe it would be different, but it truly is not. And in part, that has to do with the stratification of ancient society, such that um, the way that hierarchy worked people in power, regardless of what kind of minority they made up in society, could still um, uphold these somewhat completely illogical ideals <laughs> for for how human bodies should, quote-unquote, should perform. Um, so that... That was probably the biggest find for me of my research. And that was what really prompted me to center gender and disability because I don't think we can understand the impact of these punitive images apart from the bodies that they're using as vehicles to communicate that message. And that's really what is happening. You can't have a notion of punitive justice and afterlife torture without equating women's bodies and disabled bodies with sin in this era because of the way that ancient carceral tactics worked and because of the way they understood bodies. And so the legacy of this concept is much broader than just theological one
1: all right all right speaking of gender uh what is the one sex explanatory model of the body and how did this view shape the ancient understanding of gender
2: okay good so when i was just talking now about the weaky, leak porous bodies versus the strong hot ones okay so the one sex model would be this idea where you have women's bodies um and men's bodies, but they're part of a continuum. And there's really not a a robust notion of two sexes. It's just a matter of where you are on that sliding scale between masculinity and femininity. And then you have some other scholars coming along. So this is mostly associated with Thomas Laqueur and his work. And then some other classicists, specifically um, Helen King's work, comes in and says, wait a minute, um, and she has this famous book called The One Sex Body on Trial. She says, wait a minute, um, Lacour has actually misread a bit of Aristotle here. And and so we need to go back and think more seriously about how gender works. And what she finds is that there really still were two sexes in antiquity. Um, there wasn't just one sex. And, and this is in part because of the hierarchy that it's not as though... Um, so you could still present as relatively more feminine or or there was still sliding, there was still slippage, right? But uh, it was quite clear that the one end of the scale, that it was not a horizontal axis, that it was a vertical one, right? And that the one end of the scale was the good one and the other one was the bad one. Um, and so for my own work, this, this plays a role because when damned bodies are depicted as effeminate, they have not just, um, you know, slipped on a scale towards femininity, but they have actually become female. They have actually become disabled, and for thinking about um, the eternal consequences or the the kind of philosophical point that these texts are trying to make, it's much more dramatic, right? To say that. Um, elite males who sinned in X, Y, or Z way have not just lost some of their masculinity in the afterlife. They have become female and disabled. So it makes the rhetorical point more dramatic, but it also um, better reflects what's going on in the philosophical and medical texts around gender. And uh, it also means that the extent to which disability and femininity are being assigned to the category of sin is much less negotiable, right, in these spaces. It's a much more clear cut um, distinction that's being made. Right and um
1: you mentioned that you touched on this before but maybe um you you want to elaborate a little bit what is the relationship between the sins people commit during their lifetime and the punishments they suffer in hell
2: okay so the sins that people commit in their lifetime determine the punishment that they experience in hell um in my first book i talk about this a little bit though um what you find in hell is groups of sinners who are grouped according to one specific sin. Um, And this is where I think we get the key that these, these texts are meant to function rhetorically. And I'm speaking only for myself now here and not for you all, but I sin in more than one way. (laughs) So it seems that (laughs) this can't really be understood to be a blueprint for any actual afterlife space that mirrors the reality of human behavior, um, at least in my own case, <laughs> because it would be much more difficult for people to find where they belong in hell. <laughs> so, so, the, so these these punishments are um, not only is it a punishment that is specific to the sin that you've committed, but it usually relates in some way. So when I use the word measure for measure, or that's a translation of the law of retaliation, the Latin lex talionis you may have heard, um, which is you know the law of talion, the law of retaliation. This is a part of ancient law codes and suggests that people should be punished in measure and intensity proportionately to the crime that they committed. Um, so to give a couple of examples, maybe to illustrate this, if you have, um, in the apocalypse of Peter, um, if you have betrayed the martyrs and and committed a sin that is considered to be a speech sin by lying, you are punished by your tongue being lacerated, right? If you have committed a sin that... Um, Pertains in some way to sex, you are hung up by your reproductive organs. Um, if women commit a sin or men commit a sin that pertains in some way to child-rearing, um, beasts made out of breast milk will come and dis- devour you. Um, so <laughs> these are punishments that are imagined based upon a torture that in some way pertains to the the aspect, so they're bodily punishments, but they are enacted upon the part of the body that used to commit the sin, or in some way relating to um, parts of the body that um, were traditionally used in, traditional is the wrong word, that were used in Roman punishments and tortures as well.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right, right. And...
1: Whoa, a lot, a lot to take Sorry, in there. that was maybe more
2: than
1: you wanted to know. <laughs> no, no, no. no. That on a regular exact, day that, Well, I, I don't know. I can't speak for everyone else. But for me personally, this sinner here, uh, I'm very interested in hearing all the gory details. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious. You you touched on this also before. The question of the sort of uh, the, the sex of the offender. In other words, um, are men and women punished for committing the same uh, sins and if so, are they are they uh, are they punished differently or h- how does that work out?
2: Okay, so this was the the part of the book that was the most complicated to write because as a historian, it required me to learn not just about how particular sins were viewed in different periods of history and how gender and and. Um, men's and women's roles were understood in one period of history with respect to one text, but I'm looking at texts that span hundreds of years and trying to figure out like, okay, these shifts that I'm seeing in these texts um, over time, what can I say about that historically? So I started to quickly discover that the answer, the simple answer to your question is that they are punished differently, but they are punished differently as time progresses so, and then I had to go back and do the historiogra- the historiographic work to see if there was a story to tell there, if there was something that I could reasonably say about what is happening in different periods of history to explain this change that I noticed, or if it was just a matter of, you know, this author's particularly interested in X. Um, and it turned out there was a bit of a story. So the story is this. Uh, In the earliest Christian discussions around particular sins, and in the earliest depictions of hell, men and women are both punished together for crimes. And then over time, certain sins get divided up as something that only pertains to men, or men are punished in this way, and and men and women get punished separately for separate things. Two examples. So the first example would be adultery. So um, the standards around adultery match the society's ideas about sexual morality within and without a marriage based upon the time in which they're written. And you might expect that Christian norms around this were static, but that is not the case. <laughs> so, um, so, um, so it is true that men and women in in the, all of these Christian texts are punished for adultery. That is what you would expect. In the but the way in which they're accountable for these encounters changes. So in the second century apocalypse of Peter, for example, um, the men who are, there's women who are punished for adultery and men who are punished for adultery. And the the men who are punished say, but we didn't know that this would happen. And that we didn't know thing. And the women who are punished are punished because they're braiding their hair and they're dressing up and they they're very, following particular adornment traditions in the second century that are hotly debated in Christianity at this time period. And here's why, because in Roman marital law, a man was only a, a married woman. If she has sex with anybody who's not her husband, she has committed adultery. A married Roman man is only committing adultery. If he has sex with somebody else's wife, he has sex with a prostitute or sex worker if he has sex with a single woman not adultery it's only a problem if you interfere with somebody else's ability to create legitimate heirs so um this we did not know that we were going to fall in right and and who was a married woman was most easily by either if you know right but if you don't know The way that the woman dresses and so the implication in the apocalypse of peter is that early christian men even if they didn't know that the woman was a matrona that she was a married woman that they would still be accountable for that sin right but this reflects a kind of conversation that early christians are having with broader cultural norms around the body and there are other places where um we see, for example, sins around parenthood, that um, women are women and men in the earliest discussions of sins that were associated with um, raising legitimate heirs to maturity uh, were only assigned were assigned to both men and women. So, in the earliest texts that describe punishments associated with abortion, infanticide, exposure. mothers and fathers of those children are punished alongside each other. In later texts, women alone are punished for these things. And the punishments are not only associated with the things I just mentioned, but um, in one um, early medieval text, women are punished for failing to nurse other people's infants. So it's not just that did you expose your own children, but did you fail to nurse somebody else's baby? Um, And so not only are women suddenly held accountable for all things pertaining to child rearing, but they're specifically held accountable for the child rearing of all of society. Um, And so we see gendered ways in which these patterns of sins and punishments develop over time that mirror um, broader Roman social norms, but also early Christian development of their own social norms in different contexts around um, marriage and family.
1: Right. And how is homoerotic sex treated in the literature you explore?
2: Um It's treated in ways that are, broadly speaking, consonant with the broader cultural norms. So just like what I talked about with Roman marital customs, um, homoerotic love or um, love between men, love between women is um, punished in ways that are specific to things that were seen to be infractions to Roman marital law or with um, Roman household structure and not punished if it did not interfere, right? So things that we as outsiders coming into this historical period might see as like broad sweeping condemnations of any homoerotic union, miss the subtext that, um, these, these texts are really just repeating the idea that household hierarchy has to be kept in place. And the fundamental thing that homoerotic relationships interfere with is the production of heirs. Um, so in many cases what we're finding at or the production of heirs or, um, a sexual hierarchy where, uh, um, a household has to have a um, male head of household and a wife that is subordinate to that male head of household. Um, and that, that was understood to be both in, um, both in Roman law and in Christian structures that are patterned off of these household structures to be something that was innate to nature so a lot of the arguments that we see in these texts, ta- not even arguments, they're not arguments, they're just punishments. A lot of these punishments are very simply reflecting the sexual standards of the Roman world and then replicating that in different periods of history as we go forward. And, and so um, these texts are... I think I've conveyed already uh, violent by nature. And I think we've known as historians for a long time that they're violent by nature, which is why people were kind of conducting this search for the origin of the idea. Um, But what we haven't really addressed is the way that these texts are also not just replicating physical violence and criminal justice tactics, but the ways in which they are replicating social violence and hierarchy. Um, And the homoerotic punishments is a great example of that. What
1: would be an example of a homoerotic relationship that would, um, uh, if you could think of one example of a sort of homoerotic relationship that would disturb the household order that you were describing and one that wouldn't, just so we're clear on the difference?
2: So one that would disturb the household order. So um, Bernadette Bruton's work on love between women gives is kind of a, the classic treatment of this in 1996 and is still the foundation text for studying this. Right? But one of the problems that um, ancient folks see about a relationship between two women is that you have this person, two people, who are um, one meant to be producing heirs for the polis, and they're not. And two, um, they have no no head. They're a household without a head, right? Um, and in many cases, not a household. But even that, like even that sexual relationship, is seen. The problem is that it is not clear how it is modeling appropriate hierarchy so um so that's one um and then um one that would not interfere with the household one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is enslavement in these texts but um it was understood in antiquity that enslaved persons' bodies were a part of this household hierarchy and that that was natural. And that meant that they were not only the physical and labor property of the enslaver, but that they were also the sexual property of the enslaver. And so, it a male head of household who wanted to have um, a homoerotic relationship with an enslaved person in his household was not disturbing the household
1: order. Hmm. Wow, very, very interesting and very disturbing. Um, uh, uh, what is the significance of the fact that many of the bodies in hell are weeping?
2: So um, the weeping bodies in hell have a couple of functions. So weeping is a kind of multivalent expression in antiquity. What do I mean by multivalent? Because that's like a weird scholar world. It means that it can mean more than one thing in the ancient world. Um, Weeping is something that is good in many Christian contexts. Um, I'm really dependent here on Blake Lyrely's fabulous work on um, mourning and John Chrysostom. And she looks at how, you know, John, the Fourth century church father, John Christosom said that you should weep every day, that it would be beneficial for you to purge your emotions, because that's how you um, repent of your sins and get in. And that's how you kind of reflect your humility to God. Um, But weeping is also I mean, as I talked about that gender hierarchy, you know, that's your body is leaking. <laughs> so that's not good. <laughs> um, Got to be careful about how much leaking you do. Um, so, so um, it's also a, an activity that, if done in excess and if done every day for eternity, nonstop, right? It makes your body effeminate and womanly. So, but I also think that the thing that is really stunning is that it's not just the damned weeping and wailing over their punishments, which we might expect. It's also the saints who tour hell. So Peter, Paul, Mary, as they're touring these spaces and seeing these punishments, they are weeping before their tour guide. They're sometimes engaging in a debate with God about whether this should be happening or Jesus, depending on who we're talking about. Um, There's different characters in different scenes depending on the text. But I think that the weeping is meant to have an impact on the readers so that they themselves um, change their behavior and have an emotional response of regret for their own um, own ethical sins. I, I do believe that it is meant to kind of move the audience and that they are, especially the tears of the saints, are meant to prompt an emotional response in the readers that is similar. Um, in some of the tours where Mary is doing the weeping and, and begging Christ, for, um, some kind of stop to the torments of hell. Um, she's not only effective at getting the sinners a day of rest or a week of rest as the male saints are, um, in one text, she actually ends the whole thing and, <laughs> and just, wait. and it, a lot of people already know this, but the, you know, in the Orthodox tradition, they're, that, that is like hell has already been harrowed. Um, and so these, those Marian apocalypses that I'm talking about where Mary tours, hell are also most popular in Eastern Christianity. Um, is perhaps not surprising.
1: Very, very interesting. Um, how do the punishments of breasts and breast milk relate to ancient understandings of how breast milk worked?
2: Okay. The breast milk beasts. Um, so the breast milk beasts reflect the way that, um, ancient technologies of, uh, body hydraulics were thought to work. So the medical authors thought that breast milk was produced by blood that was stored up in your body and that if you had any problems, with and especially the treatment of women's bodies in antiquity was tied to blood flow, um, and, and especially because they, they understood quite a bit about menstruation and childbearing and that, what was involved in that, and that blood flow was a big part of this. And so um, they also noticed that women who nursed could have any range of problems with their breasts. As a result of this. Um, And so, and those problems didn't have treatments like we have for them today, right? If you had a breast infection, which is relatively common for nursing mothers, um, there was no antibiotic or antibiotic ointment. Um, It was painful. It was extremely painful and it could be deadly. So um, they're taking their observational knowledge of women's bodies and how that works, and developing medical theories around why this is the case. And um, and as a result, they not only thought that um, that they not only knew that these punishment, these breast illnesses were serious and severe, but they also tied it to their theories about education and lactation. So they thought that nursing was important for raising heirs, not only physically, but intellectually. They thought that it was the first means by which um, pure education was delivered to Roman citizens. And here I'm drawing on the work of John Penniman um, to, to think about this. When they decide, when they then have these breast milk beasts that attack men's and women's bodies in hell, um, the mechanism for upholding this societal order is now controverted into a weapon against the women who are responsible for delivering pure paideia to Roman citizens. And so I say in the book that with respect to nursing, um, ancient women really were damned if they did and damned if they didn't. And this is because they also thought that women who were nursing needed to abstain from sex in order for their milk to be pure. So a married woman who has had a child has competing pressures working on her. She needs to nurse her child to deliver pure education to that child but she also is expected to produce as many heirs as possible for the polis and so she has to decide if she's going to if she's a woman of means maybe she hires a wet nurse maybe she has an enslaved wet nurse so that she can abstain so that she can return to sexual activity um But she's then abdicated her responsibility for um, delivering paideia to her children, to someone else. And this is a big conversation um, in the literature. And then in these breast milk, these breast milk beasts, we see this double bind that ancient Christian women were in, in the form of a punishment that takes the technology of child rearing and turns it against the mothers themselves.
1: Right, right. Um, you write that by the 5th century, the Theodosian Code brought the hellscapes of the early Christian apocalypses to Earth. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, the Theodosian Code is a compilation of Christian law and it hap- it's developed after the rise of Constantine, after Christian Christianity and Rome are one and the same. So We might expect that Christians, you know, experiencing Roman rule prior to the rise of Constantine when in power might Christianize the laws in a way that changes them. And what happens in the Theodosian Code is that they do, but they make them more intense So, all along the way, these hellscapes have reflected back um, the social norms of the cultures in which they were described and written. And then in the Theodosian Code, many of the punishments that we see in those hellscapes that are more intense than the punishments that were meted out on earth are described. And so now it's not inscribed. And inscribed, exactly, right? They are inscribed. And so now. Um, we can't just say that early Christian depictions of hell were influenced by the mechanisms of Roman law and the torture that they witnessed. They manufactured them as well. Uh,
1: Could you give an example or two of of a punishment that had originally only been seen in the Christian apocalyptic uh, literature, but then is actually enacted in sort of civil law?
2: Yeah. So, for example, the, so I mentioned too in the epilogue, the punishments for homoeroticism and the punishment for nurses who don't properly handle their charges. Um, we know that before this, that nurses who didn't properly handle their charges might have been um, assigned work or might have like there, there were different punishments and in, um, the Theodosian code, they have boiling lava or sorry, boiling lava. Um, (laughs) they have, uh, uh, molten metal poured down their, um, throat. So, yeah. So it sounds exactly like the breast milk beasts. Um, it's a kind of violent measure for measure punishment that, um, that is, inscribed in a much more intense way um we don't know the extent to which those punishments were actually meted out um but for me the fact that they were even written down is it's suggestive of something itself
1: right and then you mentioned the homoerotic punishments or punishments for homoerotic behavior
2: yeah so um so the the Theodosian Code really um, has a kind of explicit uh, torture scene there. And it mirrors the punishments that we see in, um, in ancient Christian depictions of Helen. in fact, it actually fuses several together. So it's not just the punishment for homoeroticism that we see in early Christian texts, but it's actually several other punishments for other sins that are like grouped together and then applied in this situation. And we don't have any evidence that, I mean, so that is really a, a real um, intensification of um, both Roman law and punishment. Um, so it's not just about who's being singled out in those laws, it's also about the way in which the text suggests that they would be punished.
1: Right, right. And so to go back to uh, something we touched on in the beginning of our conversation, uh, just how removed is the gendered and violent schemes of justice depicted in the towers of Hell from contemporary thinking about social responsibilities, justice, and, the, and bodies?
2: Thanks. I I wish it was more removed. As I was writing this book, I kept like hoping that I would stop seeing places where it was relevant. Um, there were times when um I would be writing about things in the ancient medical authors about the way that they looked at, um, for example, um you know that there's this bit about how um if you're carrying a male child the birth and delivery and afterbirth will be easier than if you're carrying a female child. Like they actually thought that female bodies caused pain. Um, And I remember standing in line to get my coffee and the barista and one of the customers asked me whether I was pregnant with my daughter. And they asked me if I was having a boy or a girl. And I said, a girl. And then they offered me their condolences because it was going to be much more difficult to birth and raise her. Than my older son, and I just remembered thinking like, I, I don't know whether I just had that conversation in real life or if, that, or if that was part of my research. <laughs> so, um, so I think there's really like really obvious gender things going on in our culture that I that are easy for me to point to. And then I think there are more subtle things that we don't think about very much. Like the way that we think about criminal justice is very much still in North America. Now this is, I'm only talking about North America here. In North America is very much like the the idea that, of lex talionis. We don't say this, right? But embedded in um, United States notions of criminal justice is the idea of, um, a punishment needing to fit the crime in some way and measure an intensity. Um, we might not, and, and that really, that carceral techniques in general need to be um, bodily strain of some kind. Um, and we, and it, it's infused in um, parenting. It's infused in um, medical situations. The way that we think about um, women's bodies and disabled bodies is in the fabric of the way that we practice medicine. So that um, male dementia patients early on report that they feel like they have lost their masculinity simply because of the disability that they now have. Um, so. I think that unfortunately this research is tremendously relevant in a lot of contexts where we might not realize that it is.
1: Right. Right. To give one more example, uh, you discuss the Netflix original series Orange is the New Black as a kind of modern day tour of hell. Um, uh, uh, What do you mean by that?
2: Okay. So In that series, you are introduced to each of the the characters and you are introduced to their past life, to the crimes, but you're primarily introduced to them in terms of why they're in prison and what their sentence is and what their life in prison is like. And much like the Tours of Hell, it's a kind of voyeurism that is not about primarily the people in those spaces or the people that they represent that are in those spaces in modern day America, it is meant, I think, as entertainment for the audience. And as a result, audiences are consuming violent depictions of women's bodies, of Black bodies, um, as indicative of United States carceral tactics, even as um, the majority of the United States prisons are men's prisons, right? And so as I'm watching that show, I'm wondering to myself, why? Why are we so comfortable and interested in watching women's bodies treated violently? Where is that coming from? And as the show progresses, it becomes increasingly more violent. Um, and it is also um, violence that is specifically targeting um, minoritized bodies and and people in that space. Um, and so I did my best in the epilogue to draw upon um, the scholarship on race and incarceration, and I'm sure that I failed miserably um, to do that work justice because that's not my area. But I think that there's a lot more work to be done there around um, why it is in our culture. And this is a question that I still continue to ask um, around disability, around race, around gender, um, around socioeconomic status um, in antiquity and today why are we comfortable with the idea of some of viewing and looking at and objectifying violence against certain people and not others?
1: Right. Well, that's that about who we are. Right. Well, that's a really powerful question and uh, gives us a lot to think about. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
2: What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission?